What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, he looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention, how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. Anybody feeling like a Pharisee right now? <laughs> Good morning. Well, let me read you a modern-day love letter. Okay? Modern-day love letter from Max to Samantha. Dearest Samantha, 
I'm very happy to inform you that I have fallen in love with you since Tuesday, the 6th of August, 2013. With reference to the meeting held between us that day at 1,500 hours, I would like to present myself as a prospective lover. Our love affair would be on probation for a period of no less than three months, and depending on compatibility, would then be permanent. Modern day love letter. Okay. Of course, upon completion of probation, there will be continuous training and appraisal leading up to promotion from lover to spouse. The expenses incurred for coffee and entertainment would initially be shared equally between us. Later, based on evaluations, I might take up a larger share of the expenses. However, I am broad-minded enough to be taken care of on your expense account. I request that you kindly respond within 30 days of receiving this letter, failing which this offer would be canceled without further notice, and I shall be considering someone else. If you do not wish to take up this offer, I would appreciate you forwarding this letter to your sister. Thanking you in anticipation. Yours sincerely, Max. So much love, right? Well, when you get a love letter, what do you do? I mean, other than hiding it from everybody else, what do you do? You read it over and over and over again, right? What do you feel when you read a love letter? You hopefully feel loved. You feel accepted. You feel appreciative that God would bring this person into your life. Though the ability to read comes from the brain, you read a love letter from the heart. You cherish it as something intensely personal. I have never read a love letter written by my wife and thought, you know, I wish the church members would read this. They really need to hear this. Never thought that. I've never read her love letter and worried how can I possibly earn her love? That's never happened. I've never analyzed the handwriting to determine who the author was. I've never been critical of the grammar or consulted the, a commentary to determine what is really being said here. I read a love letter as if it were a letter written to me by someone who loves me very much. Sounds extremely obvious, doesn't it? So help me work through this one. The Bible is the greatest love story ever told. Yes, it contains instructions about how we're to live life, models for us to follow, examples of people who rejected his love and, and received it. Sure, some of it is hard to understand, but at its core, it is a love letter. From cover to cover, it's the ongoing story of the unconditional, patient, and gentle love of God seeking after people like you and me who wander away. Yet we seldom read it as if it's the words of a faithful lover calling us into a deep relationship. The Pharisees seldom read it that way either. They read the Bible, the law of Moses, to them simply as a set of orders to be obeyed. Now, to their credit, they took everything literally. 
They did their best to apply the law to their behavior. But they engaged in endless debate about the law. They used their strict interpretation of it to determine who was in and who was out. They engaged the law deeply through the mind and the will, and they sought to understand it intellectually. And they sought to obey it unconditionally. Unfortunately, they failed to connect with the writer of the law. The relationship. That same blind spot is at the heart of the church's weakness today. That's at the heart of it. We've read the book, but we fail to connect with the writer of the book. We treat it as our religion. And we miss the fact that Jesus is the point. So I want to talk about this love letter, this letter of the law, all the balance we have to have with this. And first I want to start with the pros and cons of sound doctrine. Now notice I said sound doctrine. I didn't say good or bad doctrine. Good sound doctrine. There's pros and cons to it. I don't want to imply that faith is all about emotions. It's not. It's not all ooey-gooey, lovey stuff. But neither is it all about the mind. It's not just left brain. It's not just right brain. It's all of it. And we need correct doctrine because it gives us a foundation for our faith. Here's how Paul explained the purpose of the Bible. He said, everything in Scripture is God's Word. All, all of it is useful for teaching and helping people and for correcting them and showing them how to live. So it's a great thing for all areas of life. Now here's Warren Wiersbe's explanation of this verse. I like how he puts this. The Bible teaches us what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to stay right. That's pretty much it, isn't it? The Bible is full of everything we need. Now, if it's just doctrine, however, it can become a rigid viewpoint that we kind of filter all truth through. Rigid. The Pharisees, in their rigid messianic viewpoint, the Messiah, the coming one, they had a rigid viewpoint. And they couldn't believe in Jesus because he didn't fit their picture. He kind of missed it because they were so rigid. You know, it, it's like every, everything in the Bible um, it is not necessarily an exact command of what we're supposed to do. For example, um, slave owners in the 18th century, they read the Scriptures in such a way to enforce their belief that God endorsed slavery. God didn't endorse slavery. He just wrote and spoke to us in the context of slavery because that was going on. He talked about slaves. He talked about slave owners. But he didn't say, thou shalt own a slave. He didn't do that. We miss it so much in that because we're so rigid. Oh, if it's in the Bible, we must do it. Well, do you have a rope? Do you have a tree to go hang yourself? That's what Judas did, and it's in the Bible. Okay, we have to have wisdom to know what to follow in the Bible and what is just there to teach us something. An example for, there's all kinds of stuff like that in the Bible. Here's another thing doctrine can do. Doctrine, it it can lead us to spiritual arrogance. 
Paul wants to talk to Timothy, his apprentice, and tell them about the Pharisees. And he says, they want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about. Pretty straightforward. Now watch this. Even though they speak so confidently. With all of our media today, we get to hear so many people and see them on the screen. Have you ever heard anybody on that screen that just says something really stupid? Ever? Okay. But don't they say it with the ultimate amount of confidence? You wonder, where are they coming from? There's something about being overly sure about possessing truth, even if it is the truth, that breeds cockiness. It's technical theology. Well, it, it says it this way, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, that dogmatism. You know, sometimes we have to have a little wiggle room in the way we see things because it may not be presented in the Bible the way we understand. We have to dig in a little bit. It can uh, breed pride when we think, well, I know it, it's in the Bible. And pride is the greatest cancer of spiritual health. So we've got to be careful. Doctrine can also breed a false sense of security. We're not saved by believing the Bible. Guess who believes the Bible? Satan. He believes the Bible. He knows that's the Word of God. All kinds of people are just focusing on the Bible and think, well, that's, that's the truth. I believe it. I must be saved. But we need to trust in Christ. That's who the Bible reveals. Listen to what Jesus said, talking to the Pharisees. You've, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. The Scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. I have people all the time that I talk to that that want their problem fixed. They really want it to go away. And, And you give them something that Jesus said. You have Jesus sitting right in front of them. And they're like, oh, well, I can't do that. I can't. Why not? Why not? Why don't we focus on Jesus? See, this is because people can profess faith without possessing faith. They can. People can spout out the right answers about all these spiritual questions. People can even be baptized without a heart commitment. It's just all a ritual. Pharisees, both past and present, mistakenly believe that we have right, if we have right doctrine and we're obedient to that doctrine, then that's all the law requires. It says the rule, you keep it. In other words, if we know the Bible, if we know it well enough and we obey it, then that must mean that we are spiritually mature. We're obeying the rules, spiritually mature. So to, to correct that kind of thinking, I want us to look at a story in the 13th chapter of Matthew. It's known as the parable of the seed and the soil. It's in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23. 
In this story, Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples how his mission will continue, how his kingdom will advance after he's arrested, thrown in jail, and executed. And he does it with a series of seven parables, seven stories. A parable, the word actually means to come alongside. It's a technique of teaching using parallel stories. And the purpose is to compare and contrast stories to something else. For example, it's like me and virtually every teacher, pastor, use all kinds of stories, secular stories, like stories about school or work, um, things that aren't necessarily church stories or Bible stories. Uh, that's why we use secular music sometimes or a secular movie clip. It's to, to get something kind of relevant to where everybody's at, to look at it and bring it alongside the story of truth so we better understand it. So in these seven parables, uh, each one begins like this. The kingdom of God is like, boom, the kingdom of God is like, and we're looking at the first of these parables. It's a story of a farmer planting seed in different types of soil. It says, as he was scattering, the farmer, as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But then the sun came up. The plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. But the disciples, the people listening to this, missed the point again. So he explains the story. He explains that the farmer represents God, and that the soil represents the human heart, and that the seed represents the Word of God. In churches like ours, the word is kind of a nickname for the Bible. And Jesus is also referred to as the living word. So why compare God's word to seed? Well, here's one reason in Hebrews 4.12. The word of God, the word that God speaks, is alive. And it's full of power, making it active, operative, energizing, effective. There's life in the words of God. And that life can be imparted to those who believe. These words must take root in the heart. They must be cultivated in order to bring fruit. Now, Jesus was admitting something in this parable that's pretty extraordinary. He was admitting that many people would reject his word. They would reject it. Now, doesn't mean that he wanted that to happen. He didn't want that to happen. He just knew it would happen. The Calvinist view is that there are certain people that are picked to be chosen by God, you know, and there's other people that aren't. You know, sucks to be one of you. You know, that, that's the Calvinistic view. You know, Jesus didn't want that to happen, but he knew it would happen. And that's why he was never really impressed by the crowds that followed him, because he knew many of them would turn away. L listen to this perspective. 
three out of these four cases, the four examples of seed, three, 75% of the time, the seed does not bear fruit. Wow. 75%. Now, is that because of the seed? No. It's because of the condition of the the soil. That's the whole idea behind our three-part process. We cultivate our hearts through celebrating, through connecting, and through reaching so that this transforming power of God and His Word grows in us and bears fruit. That's the whole idea behind the three-part process. That hard-packed road represents those who won't listen. They're just not going to listen. Sorry, don't want to hear it. The rocky places remind us of those who, they respond, but it's a superficial response. You know, it reminds me, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to share Jesus with a, a bunch of Hindu people, different Hindu people. And, you know, the Hindus believe in millions of gods. They, they, everything's a god, you know. And uh, so the first time you're talking to one of these people, they, you know, especially the hardcore ones, their eyes light up a little bit. They get smiles on their faces, and you think, wow, my witnessing is doing a good job here. And then you realize that I like your Jesus too. You know, he's just another one of the millions of God. It's a superficial acceptance of his word. It's not heartfelt. The thorns are people who grow preoccupied with other things. Watch this. Even in the good soil, there's room for some variation. There's different degrees of productivity, 100, 60, 30 times. In other words, disciples don't come in just one cookie-cutter size or style. There's room in the kingdom for the ordinary as well as the spectacular. This parable exposes a flaw that we have with our belief. There's a flaw here. One that says... Biblical knowledge equals spiritual maturity. In other words, if we can just understand more of the Bible, if we can just gain more knowledge about the original languages in which it was written, if we can just understand the author's intent, if we can just decipher the the figures of speech and the historical context in which they were written, then... We're spiritually mature. We've got it. And that gives us the right to wear the big S on our chest. Super saint. Now don't think I'm trying to say those things aren't important. They're very important. Keep doing them. But what I'm trying to say is that the key to fruitfulness lies in the condition of the soil. So I need to ask that uncomfortable question. How's your soil? (laughs) How's your heart? How fruitful are you? How involved are you in celebrating God all the time? How involved are you in connecting with His people? How involved are you in reaching out to the hurting and the missing? Look what the Bible says that fruitfulness is. A whole bunch of 
uh, definitions for biblical fruitfulness. It includes holiness. Uh, we, a farming term is used that we reap uh, holiness because we have Jesus in our hearts. It means a change of character. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. If you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you, you don't need law. You don't need, oh, rule, 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 oh, do this right. Now, because we're not filled up to completeness, we break a lot of those rules and we need more of it. But, but the fruit is the Holy Spirit. It refers to things that we do that demonstrate his nature. In other words, that show that we have been transformed. It it says that you'll produce fruit in every good work. And watch this. This is really cool. And grow in the knowledge of God. So we still get the knowledge. That doesn't go away. It's not Jesus or knowledge. We get Jesus and knowledge. It means winning others to Christ. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. It means sharing what we have. In Romans, Paul is talking about an offering that was collected for for another group of people, and he calls it fruit. Did you think you were putting fruit in the basket today? In a way, you were. It means giving praise and worship to God. Fruitfulness is praise and worship to God. How much do we give to God? The Bible says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So we can see that the condition of the soil is what allows the fruit to grow. This is the point we cannot afford to miss. It's all about the condition of our hearts. Now, we get off course sometimes. So, so let's talk about the correction for Pharisees like us. All right? We get off course. A good place to go is what's known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's his best sermon he ever gave. Okay? It's all in Matthew 5. Last week, I told you that Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you don't get into heaven. Now understand what he's saying there. He's saying that the the Pharisees were the most righteous. They were trying the hardest. They really were. With all their might, they were trying to obey God. They just missed it. Okay? And he's saying you got to be better than that to get into heaven. So what he's really saying is you're not going to make it by the rules. It's not going to work. Look at the Pharisees. They can't even get it to work, and they're doing the best job. So he says that, then he goes into this series of compare and contrast statements. Like, you've heard it said, but I say. You heard about this, but here's what I say. And in each of the case studies, Jesus demonstrates how the law is to be fulfilled or or actually explained. He shifts the focus does a really interesting thing. He shifts the focus from behavior that the law dealt with to the underlying motive. Because that's where God works. It's it's in changing the motives. 
not the, the behavior results of the motive. For example, when you refer to murder, when he referred to murder, he goes to the root of murder. He doesn't just talk about, well, you shouldn't do that. He talks about hatred and anger. And, and he's, he's saying rather than nurse the hatred, nurse the anger, which could lead, it's not always, but could lead to murder, the Christ follower must value peacemaking. We're to take the initiative to be reconciled to one another. What about adultery? In its true meaning, the law doesn't just speak about the act. It speaks about the heart, the concern of lust. That's what Jesus is talking about. Divorce is another one. Moses permitted it. Jesus called for a lifetime commitment. He talked about the commitment, not, not whether divorce was right or wrong. He talked about the commitment to each other. What about making promises? Do we make our word binding if there's a contract and then we feel free to break that promise if it's just a handshake? Instead, he says, be the kind of person whose yes means yes and whose no means no. What about revenge, to repay those who harm you? He points out that the law says you can insist on your rights, but in the kingdom, God's blessing rests on the merciful. All these indicate that there's a course of correction in the Bible. When we find ourselves being a little too pharisaical, we need to go find out what Jesus is talking about here. Now that's when we get off course. What about when we're on course? Think we're going to stay there? <laughs> Boy, don't we fall off. So what about preventative maintenance? God gave us the Bible that we might not just be informed but transformed. This includes transformed thinking, transformed feeling, transformed understanding of the relationship we can have with God. There's so much more to be gained than just intellectual understanding. So how can we study the Bible in such a way as not to succumb to Phariseeism? Well, maybe we should ask ourselves some questions. This would be a good list of questions to Keep close by so you can run through them every once in a while. Here's one. Am I using my biblical knowledge to point out the sins of others? How many of us do that? We do it all the time, right? Too often we become Barney Fife. You remember Barney Fife and uh, uh, Andy of Mayberry, you know? <whistles> Barney. Oh my gosh, what an idiot. Right? He, he would just take the law and go try to find somebody doing something wrong. Andy, Andy, I got him, I got him. You know, to give somebody a ticket for the least little thing. Too often we become spiritual Barney Fifes. And here's what the letter to the Romans says. When you judge another person, you condemn yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, i, I got to say something here, a little side note, to keep this judging thing balanced. I hear a lot of Christians say, we're not supposed to judge. We're never supposed to judge. 
That's not true. That's not true. Um, let me give you an example. Anybody in here, and I'm not going to pick on you, don't worry, just raise your hand. Anybody in here that was on the search committee when I was interviewing the search committee, or the elder team, you know, any of you guys, or the staff, I guess the staff did it some too. You know what they did to me? They judged my socks off. They were supposed to. They were supposed to look at my actions. That's what a resume is for. Here's what I've done, you know, or what I haven't done. They're not judging my heart. That's what we're not supposed to judge is people's hearts. Only God knows the heart. We can judge people's actions. Okay, if you go over and slap my wife, I'm going to have something to say about that. Okay, that's an action, but I'm not going to judge your heart. Okay, just wanted to throw that in there. So we got to be careful that we don't use Bible knowledge just to point out other people's sins. Another question, is there evidence that my biblical knowledge has puffed me up? (sighs) Yeah, just went to the conference about the book of Ephesians. I can quote it by heart. Do I do that? I've got to ask myself the question. Um, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's a great Bible verse to remember. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Pride is at the top of the list of things God hates. Another question. Am I aware of the underlying motive of my sin? That's what we just talked about in the point before. Okay, Instead of trying to mask my sin issue and look more spiritual like the Pharisees, maybe I need to ask this question. What's the motive? Maybe I want to blame my parents. Or maybe I want to go to the doctor and get more drugs to take care of the problem. We can ask ourselves, what makes us do these things? If I'm stealing and cheating, maybe I should be dealing with my lust for things instead of the stealing and cheating. Because I'm going to keep doing that if there's an underlying problem, right? Another question, do I have a teachable spirit? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the meek. The meek shall inherit the earth. Doesn't that sound like a weak, timid word, meek? They're so meek. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. It means... Actually, one definition of it is strength under power. I mean, power, excuse me, strength under control or power under control. Another definition is being teachable. If you're meek, you're teachable, you're pliable. Is there room for God to correct the inevitable heresy inside of me? Do I allow Him to correct me? Because really, all of us are going to miss the point at some point. So we got to be teachable. One more question. Is my relationship with Jesus more important than my pursuit of biblical knowledge? Think of that for a minute. Is my relationship with Jesus more important than my pursuit of biblical knowledge? Listen, I'm a Bible teacher. What do you think my tendency is going to go after all the time? Oh, this is a good nugget of truth here. Oh, I better tell those church people. They need to hear this. And Jesus is sitting there the whole time 
Hey, dude, you want to talk to me for a little while? Biblical knowledge will have no transforming effect. No transforming effect on us apart from that ongoing vital relationship with Jesus. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century theologian. He once wrote, there's a difference between having a, rela- a rational judge- judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. Just as there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. I'm a musician. So easy for me to sing these songs and analyze the songs. Let's see, that section moved into this section with the five chord, and oh, that was so nice. Oh, the harmony's sounding good today. Jesus is saying, you know what? You're supposed to be singing to me not in music theory class. Remember, I started this talk referring to love letters. I've been transformed by the love of my wife. Uh Uh-oh. Can't cry now. She sat in the back of the room at the first service, so it wasn't as bad. Now she's up here. I really have. I've been transformed by her love for me. Her notes, her cards for the last 27 years, is is that right? Maybe 28, counting the dating stuff. Those cards have not transformed me. They've been merely reminders. They inform me of the depth of her love. You know what it's been? It's been knowing her and living with her, and being deeply loved by her that transformed me. I'm not the same man she married, and she'll tell you that's a darn good thing. (laughs) Have you read the love in this letter lately? Once you've experienced that love, you'll be able to live the Bible rather than just knowing the Bible. Until then, nothing you do, no matter how righteous, nothing will work. Because you'll be missing the point as a modern-day Pharisee that it's just a bunch of rules, just the way i got to try to live my life. Learn God's Word. Yes, please, learn His Word. Study the Bible. But also let God's love transform you. Experiencing God's love. That's what we practice here every Sunday morning. Keep practicing it every Sunday morning and beyond. Practice it all the time. And I want you to do something when you get home. Uh, Some of you will take this to the nth degree, and that's cool. You've got a crafting spirit. Some of you guys, I'm sure, will just take a piece of notebook paper, paper and rip it in half and write this on it. But put this on a bookmark. Make a Bible bookmark and act like it's God speaking to you and write on it, don't miss the point of my love letter to you. Every time you pick up the Bible, read that. Don't miss the point 
of my love letter to you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your awesome act of love. Your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, deserving nothing bad, took everything bad on his shoulders, including my sin, and in an act of love died for me. And thank you, Lord, for your Bible, that collection of letters and books and songs that all point to this loving God. God, I pray that you'd help us. Even when we come to these tough places in the Bible, the wars and the killings and the the, the boring things to us because they're just lists of names that we can't pronounce. Help us to get through that and never miss the point that it's part of your love for us. And let us continue to be transformed by that love. And then we will be able to do your, your will because we're being transformed into your image. And we just want to thank you for giving us a glimpse of that today. In Jesus' name, amen.